Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Elise Maisel, Acting Assistant Professor of Lawyering at New York University. We'll be discussing her new article, The Case for Downsizing the Corporate Attorney-Client Privilege, which is forthcoming in the UC Law SF Law Journal. Elise, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Most people listening or most Americans have probably seen enough TV or movies to know something about the attorney-client privilege. They might have some sense that conversations that they have with a lawyer, in some circumstances at least, are going to be protected from disclosure to third parties. What people might not be as aware of, though, is that privilege is not just for individual human beings like you and me. It's also for lawyers and their relationships with corporate clients. I wondered if you could maybe talk a little bit about the origins of the attorney-client privilege. Does it predate the movie and TV era? Where does it come from? And does the privilege as far as it extends to corporations and their lawyers, does that have a similar origin as the individual attorney-client privilege, or is it perhaps a more modern invention? To start with the basics, privilege protects confidential communications between attorneys and clients for the purpose of facilitating legal advice. It's a common law doctrine, one of the oldest common law doctrines in our legal tradition. It was actually developed in 16th century England. There, the default presumption in litigation was that the king is entitled to every man's evidence And privilege developed in order to protect the honor of the attorney. It was tawdry to engage in confidential communications between attorney and client and then be forced to turn around and share those secrets with a court. So the privilege was developed to protect these relationships, to foster these kinds of relationships. And then justifications for the privilege evolved over the course of its common law development. Once privilege was developed, it was grafted onto corporate clients. And then the justification for those clients was a little bit post hoc. Up until the late 20th century, um, privilege for corporate clients wasn't uncontroversial. In a case called Radiant Burners in 1962, a court actually reasoned that it would be impossible for a corporation to comply with privileges confidentiality requirement because shareholders are entitled to inspect a corporation's books and records. And the United States Supreme Court addressed the corporate privilege head on in Upjohn v. United States, which held that the privilege can extend to communications between any corporate employee and corporate counsel. You mentioned some of the normative justifications for having a privilege at all. It seems like it's not necessarily something that must exist as a matter of law, developed as a matter of common law. And you cite maybe one early justification that it would be beneath the professional honor and dignity of the lawyer to be forced to essentially serve as a witness against his or her client. How has the justification for having an attorney-client privilege evolved over over time? How do lawyers and, and scholars of professional responsibility and the legal profession justify the privilege today? And does that track when we're talking about the justifications for corporations, non-individuals, non-human persons? having the same privileges that individuals might have in their conversations 
in communications with counsel. You're right that the original rationale was this attorney honor fostering these special relationships. That's why you see it in a spousal privilege, patient, doctor privilege, all of these relationships that societally we think are very important. In the corporate context, Upjohn offered the next evolution of the privileges justification, which was, in the words of the court, to promote full and frank communications with counsel so that clients can conform their conduct to the law. The idea is that we're going to create this bubble that will promote candor and then corporate clients through their agents will communicate all the necessary information for the attorney to offer the best possible legal advice. Does that rationale hold for corporate clients? My research indicates not really. In my paper, I've divided the problems I see in corporate privilege not living up to its policy justification into two categories. I would call these categories theoretical problems and practical problems. I see three central theoretical problems. The first is the issue of confidentiality. The second, the complexity of the roles of directors and shareholders. And the third, changes in control. So I'll take those one by one. First, confidentiality. An essential ingredient in privilege is confidentiality. Corporations have to act through agents. They're inanimate creatures of the law. So they act through agents who can be the CEO, but can also be the teenager on his first day in the mailroom and everyone in between. So under Upjohn's framework, a nearly unlimited universe of corporate agents can be on the receiving end of a communication and not break privilege. None of these agents, however, enjoy the protection of the privilege. So how is it still confidential? I cite in the paper a California district court case where a judge refused to order the production of litigation hold notices sent to approximately 600 employees of eBay because the notices were drafted by in-house counsel and were marked attorney-client privilege. I struggle to think that we can consider something confidential when it's disseminated to hundreds or even thousands of people. So that's a confidentiality puzzle in the corporate context. I'll move to director's shareholders. Shareholders are the beneficiaries of corporations. They're not presumptively entitled to privileged materials, but they can get them if they show good cause. So in this way, the privilege is conditional. When does the shareholder speak for the corporation and its interests, sometimes in derivative suits, but other times they're seen as this third-party external constituency whose presence would actually break the privilege. Directors, on the other hand, are presumptively entitled to the privilege, but it doesn't protect them, and it can be waived later by the corporation. And relatedly, corporate control changes hands all the time, and the privilege passes with corporate control, so these corporate agents can't be sure their communications will be protected from public consumption later. Oftentimes, a hostile person or group takes over, and then that hostile person or group owns the privileged communications. I think of Elon Musk having possession of the communications about his takeover of Twitter. For practical problems, the biggest problem I see is overwithholding. And I'm happy to talk about this more in a bit more detail, but because of the conceptual messiness of corporate attorney-client privilege, it creates a tremendous pretext to hide a lot of documents and communications and litigation. Privilege disputes rarely make it in front of judges, and there's a rich body of scholarship documenting how much judges actually hate discovery disputes like privilege. I also, as an anecdotal matter, experienced the ire of many a judge for raising privilege disputes myself. The process outside of court is largely regulated by lawyers. So lawyers as zealous advocates may choose the most generous interpretation possible of the scope of the privilege and trust that their adversary is just going to trust them based on looking at a privilege log. A couple of other practical issues I see is plaguing the corporate privilege. Choice of law is all over the place. 
Some communications may be privileged in one jurisdiction, but not in another. For example, the Third Circuit has held that common interest privilege can apply in transactional contexts. But New York State has held the opposite, that no common interest applies in purely transactional settings. So either parties are engaging in communications they believe will be privileged and then risk later having the rug pulled out from under them, or they are aware of that risk and then the privilege is doing nothing to incentivize candor. The distinction between business and legal advice is also a problem. It's pretty slippery. In the moment, it's really hard for parties to know what's privileged and what's not. When there's a lawyer in the room and legal and non-legal issues are being discussed, courts are forced to parse after the fact whether the primary purpose was a legal one or a business one. And because lawyers are involved in so many aspects of corporate life, especially in more tightly regulated industries, this issue of whether something is business advice or legal advice comes up a lot. Another issue that I flag in the paper that I think is really interesting is the issue of interlock directors. Directors often serve on the board of more than one entity. And they are, as it turns out, often not terribly clear about what privilege protects and what it doesn't. And in fact, the scholarship around interlocking directorships assumes that legal information is going to bleed across interlocks. So directors are sharing privileged communications. Possibly. And if that's the case, it's hard to imagine that this promotes candor. You talk about in in discussing some of the practical uh, workability issues around how attorney-client privilege is practiced in the corporate context, you talk about the different hats that we all might wear, employee, shareholder, officer of another company. And then you also note that with those hats, there's a shadow hat, which is I might be an employee or a director or an officer today or a shareholder today, but I might be a former of those in the future, as we've seen, for example, in the case of Twitter. Twitter was litigating against Elon Musk. Its communications with its counsel were, of course, subject to the attorney-client privilege. And then it achieved its ends, which was to be acquired by Elon Musk. And now that privilege belongs to Elon Musk. So there's an interesting successor effect there. Could you talk a little bit about the potential for conflicts, given the different roles that the human agents of a corporation play, their interest as individuals or their interest as potentially fiduciaries or agents for other principles. What are some potentials for conflicts or problems to arise given all of these different roles under the same corporate umbrella? The corporate privilege does not protect the individuals who act on its behalf. And one of the things that I think is most illustrative of this sort of conflict inherent in Upjohn is the Upjohn warning itself. When corporate lawyers talk to employees, they need to give Upjohn warnings, explaining that they protect the corporation and not individuals. When I was in practice and represented corporations, we had to be careful about our tone in delivering these warnings because from time to time, employees actually interpreted them as threats. And so this is the fundamental tension between Upjohn's warning and Upjohn's In many contexts, the fact that the corporation is protected by the privilege does nothing to promote the aim of candor and full and frank communications. I think about even in the case of Elon Musk and Twitter, while let's say there were some sort of liability against individual officers or directors, there's usually indemnification in those kinds of cases. So there may not be a legal risk, a legal reason why you wouldn't want the privilege to cover former officers and directors. But think about just the pure embarrassment of having someone who's your business adversary see your private communications after the fact that you are purportedly to be full and frank. You mentioned before 
that there might be a tendency toward overclaiming of privilege in the corporate context. Could you talk a little bit about that and any social costs that might give rise to? There might be concerns for the client and the attorney and the agents of the client and privilege means for them or for counterparties, but are there social costs that we might want to be aware of when it comes to the practice and use of corporate privilege? Is it being abused, perhaps? Yes, the corporate attorney-client privilege imposes huge costs. As a preliminary matter, there's an equity issue. When parties overwithhold under a claim of privilege, it's costly to challenge it. So to start, only litigants with resources are really in a position to fight out a motion to compel against a big publicly traded corporation with a large global law firm. While these things do get challenged, when they get challenged, they consume a huge amount of judicial resources. I walk through one example in the paper of two large companies fighting a privilege battle. It took document by document review in camera by both the district judge and the magistrate assigned to preside over a discovery in the matter, a lengthy telephonic hearing, two written decisions by the magistrate judge and a written decision by the district judge, all to resolve a case of naked overwithholding. And as a proof point of that overwithholding, in that case, after the initial challenge, the judge asked the parties to re-review their supposedly privileged documents and to withdraw anything that clearly wasn't privileged. And the court noted that the reduction in documents the court needed to consider was significant. Parties are overwithholding. They're using their privilege log as an opening offer, and they're hoping that their counterparty won't challenge their bluff. The case I just mentioned is one case. It's one example, but it's evidence of a greater phenomenon. And the lack of judicial involvement in the process, the vague rules, and the cost of challenging a privilege call keeps a lot of truth out of the courtroom. I'd also want to point to, on the workability point, the United States Supreme Court's recent oral argument in Inri Grand Jury. In that case, the Supreme Court granted cert to decide which test should be used to decide when a communication was business or legal, and the government urged the continued application of a primary purpose test, while the petitioner asked for a significant or bona fide legal purpose to be sufficient to withhold communications under a claim of privilege. The justices tried to put a percentage on how legal a communication needed to be to resolve this lawyer-in-the-room problem, what to do about how much you withhold when there's a lawyer in the room, and none of the advocates could come up with a satisfying solution. The attorney-client privilege protects both communications from lawyer to client and from client to lawyer. And under petitioner's framework, the logical conclusion of the lawyer in the room problem is to just cloak everything that's said in that room with the privilege while the government was asking for a solution where after the fact, courts were left to weigh legal and what was non-legal in a way that the parties at the time aren't necessarily aware of. So neither of those factors necessarily promote candor. One massively overwithholds, and one doesn't serve the privileges justification. In that case, the United States Supreme Court decided to, after oral argument, dismiss the cases improvidently granted. I think perhaps because any statement that answered any of these questions would be a major shift in the law, which is now mired in ambiguity. I'd like to talk a bit about your prescription or your recommendation in the article. You talk about a concept of a privileged communications committee of a corporate board of directors. Could you talk about that recommendation, how it would work, how it would address some of the problems around corporate privilege that we've talked about that you and others have pointed to, and how might the work of the privileged communications committee compared to that of other board committees like the audit committee or special litigation committee in the derivative litigation context? 
my solution to bring the excesses of corporate privilege is to shrink it down by quite a lot to bring it back in line with its supposed justification. Other scholars have proposed a complete elimination of the privilege for corporate clients, but I don't go quite that far because I think there is a place for conversations that don't risk ever seeing the light of day. Even in the corporate context, I just think that space should be much smaller. I propose a privilege communications committee. This would be a board committee, a lot like an audit committee in that it can have special expertise and be designed to consult with a particular type of professional, and they would meet for the express purpose of consulting with counsel. There are certain issues that can't be resolved in terms of the theoretical issues with the corporate attorney-client privilege. Um, So long as corporations have privilege, certain problems are going to be associated with agency costs. But we can resolve much of the uncertainty by creating an environment that is more conducive to candor. When they're on a privileged communications committee, parties will know the communication is privileged. The role and the purpose is clearly delineated. For some communications, there isn't a need to incentivize those communications with privilege. Day-to-day communications, the negotiation of low-stakes contracts, and then their discussion back with legal. There are independent business reasons to engage in day-to-day legal communications, as well as, in the case of officers and directors, a duty to manage the affairs of a corporation in a manner consistent with law. Therefore, there's no need for the privilege to incentivize these types of communications. The Privileged Communications Committee would step in the case of much higher stakes conversations, where there is a risk of a lack of candor, and they could speak directly with in-house or outside counsel in a predictably privileged context. As I was reading this paper, I had some questions about potential extensions, which if you'll permit me, I'd love to maybe discuss some of those here. What might this paper mean for entities that aren't human, but they aren't corporations either? For example, government entities, charities, religious congregations, political parties, and so on. Uh, Does your paper offer any learnings or insights for those non-corporate, non-human entities that also might need to rely upon attorney-client privilege at some point? While some of the issues I focused on in my research are specific to the corporate form, I think there's a lot of room to explore how this proposal might map onto different entities. For each, I think there's probably a way to find a core group or individual whose role it is to consult with counsel in a privileged manner. Predictability here is key. I think with predictability, you get a greater opportunity for candor, which is what the privilege is supposedly justified by. The key feature is one where it's clear that the communication is for legal purposes. And by specifically delineating when we're dealing in a legal consultation context and when we're not, this would promote that kind of clarity, which would in turn promote that kind of candor. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this paper and this conversation? And this is an area of, I think, continued scholarly interest for you. So are there open questions for future projects that you might be working on in this corporate attorney-client privilege vein that we might want to keep an eye out for in the future. I think the big takeaway here is that privilege is a public policy choice. We are shielding certain communications from the truth-seeking process of litigation. We're saying that incentivizing certain communications is more important than getting to the full story in a court of law. When we're preventing parties from getting at the truth in litigation, it has to be worth it. And my research has led me to believe that the supposed justification we're offering for our current iteration of the corporate attorney-client privilege is just not matching up with the reality of how it operates in practice. Accordingly, I think we should be thinking about some bold actions to change it. Our guest today has been Elise Maisel. 
acting assistant professor of lawyering at New York University. We've discussed her article, The Case for Downsizing the Corporate Attorney-Client Privilege, which is forthcoming in the UC Law SF Law Journal. Elise, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.